0: The Exton Moss Experiment Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss Episode 17 Podcast Crossovers Volume 1 Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss recording solo for once We've recently recorded a few articles for other podcasts, and we've decided to share them with you in this edition. The first is a piece on Kavanaugh QC from 2018, which we recorded for Round the Archives. It's a splendid podcast run by Lisa Parker and Andrew Trowbridge, and this is from episode 31 of their series.
1: Hello, I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton, and we do a podcast called the Exton Moss Experiment which looks at old archive television. got our name from the Quatermass Experiment, which is the first thing that we started looking at, and we're slowly working our way through the different Quatermass serials and also the, the works of Nigel Neal. in, among all the rest of the, the stuff that we look at. We tend to do themed episodes um, and quite a bit of Doctor Who because we originally met as Doctor Who fans. And I've known Andy from Round the Archives for a lot of years. We first met in the late 80s when we were both working in a chemistry laboratory down in Poole in Dorset, and we've stayed friends ever since. And to give you a little taster of what we do on our podcast, we're going to watch an, a piece of Nigel Neal television and then comment on it afterwards. And what we're going to watch is the what I believe is the last piece of television that Nigel Neal wrote, which is an episode of Kavanagh QC from nineteen ninety-seven, and it's called Ancient History. It stars John Thor as the lawyer Kavanagh, and it ran for I think seven seasons in the late nineties to early two thousands. So the episode as I say, the episode we're going to watch is Ancient History. We'll watch that and let you know what we think afterwards. Roll VT.
0: Roll VT. Right, well, that was Kavanagh QC Ancient History, an episode from 1997.
1: A very nice piece of TV. I enjoyed that from beginning to end. Nigel Neal's final script... I remember watching this at the time. I've watched it a few times since. I think it's a fantastic and very powerful piece of television. Deals very well and sensitively with a very difficult subject, um, that of war crimes and crimes within the concentration camps in Germany. In this particular instance dealing with the um, camp at Dachau.
0: And freezing experiments, which I must say that's... Passed me by. I didn't know that they had been those experiments, unless they, I, I honestly don't know. No. Um, it's something I need to read up
1: on now. I believe there was. There's an awful lot of stuff that we just don't know, don't know whether it happened happened or not. It's not something I know a great deal about. Kind of not something I've really wanted to know a great deal about. It's a very clever script. The plot revolves around the accusation of war crimes against a a doctor who was in the Dachau concentration camp. His contention is that he was in there as a prisoner. The crime he's accused of is having been there as a doctor directing medical experiments into freezing people and trying to bring them back to life afterwards. And the uh, the argument was that he escaped from the camp by shooting and wearing the clothes of one of the inmates who died and taking on his identity. And they have a a number of um, witnesses for this, the most compelling one of which... Uh, is an, a frail old man who dies in between the initial hearing and the well, and, and the, and judgment, the, the yeah. trial at the Old Bailey. Kavanagh, who's prosecuting, isn't able to bring this witness and his testimony. There are other witnesses. There's a fantastic performance by Warren Mitchell. Warren Mitchell. We, so. we tend to think of as a, a comedic actor, and he's a very good comedic actor, but he puts in a brilliant straight performance in this.
0: I'd rather watch him straight than as a comedy actor, quite frankly. He, he does that so well.
1: And how much of that is because Alf Garnett is such an unpleasant character to watch? That-
0: oh no, I've seen him as, as, uh, in straight roles and other things, and, and comedy roles and other things. Mm. And I just think when he's when he does that quite unpleasant, serious side that he, that he brings out in certain roles, there was, a, there was an episode of something, I think it was just a, a one-off called Secrets. I think it was by the... Python. It was by Michael Palin, certainly, and Terry Jones. It was set in a chocolate factory where they were putting people in the sweets. It was mental, um, but he played the factory owner, and it was quite a dark performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he was just captivating to watch him in a serious role, he, uh, as he was in this. Uh, he,
1: he was very good in this. Um, I don't think there's a standout performance in this because everybody, everybody just is really is. good. It looks as though the prosecution case is going to fall apart because of the loss of this witness there are other witnesses um, but they they don't tell as compelling a story as this old man and the defense team decides that to uh, as the icing on the cake to um, prove the innocence of their their client they're going to bring along somebody who knew him from the uh, as a, a prisoner from the camp so they, they find this um, frail old lady in a uh, in a nursing home who recognizes his picture and is very tearful and emotional and says, oh, he, he was my life in the camp. When she comes to give evidence, what she actually means by that is he was the one who saved her life after having taken it.
0: But through the so, freezing experiences, freezing people to death yeah. and then essentially resurrecting them.
1: So by a stroke of accident, she proves the prosecution's case rather than proving the defense case. And at that point... The defendant um, admits to, to what he's done.
0: And there's a, a wonderful shot, uh, uh, an old bugger moment from Bill Nye as the defence counsel. When he realises just. That his star witness has actually dropped him right in it. Yeah. The, the new one, when it comes, I, I actually had a bit of a problem with because all the way through, Dr. Beck, as played by Frederick Treves, no, 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 no! This is all false. It's all false. You mistake, and he puts on a this performance, and then a frail old woman whose testimony isn't that solid, really. He just crumbles and, and just confesses. He, that was the bit I had a problem with. But he with. crumbles
1: and confesses after he sees that his wife believes the witness.
0: Ah, I, that didn't come across to
1: me. Right. So he's had 50-odd <laughs> years of this new persona and has built up the family life around Because he, he A short but very good performance by Rowena Cooper, saying how she'd helped him uh, when she was an aid worker to get to, to England to, to study medicine. And then having come to, to England, he set up this new life... Um, Met the the woman he was to to marry had had a family life, so he was living that persona for fifty odd years. My take was that he re- because he recognised that that life was gone. His wife believed the old woman in in the dock.
0: That's how it all fell apart. Then right? Now it makes more sense, yeah.
1: It, it kind of negated the uh, the life that he'd had in England and brought back the life that he'd had in, in Germany. And he was originally Polish.
0: You did actually drop in, while we were watching it, a, a little factoid about Judith Kerr, Nigel Neal's wife. Nig- Nigel
1: Neal's wife was a German Jew who had escaped the beginnings of the Nazi persecution. She uh, she and her family had moved to eventually England via Switzerland, I think. In 1933, her father had been a writer and his books had been burnt and the family had seen the writing on the wall and got out of Germany before before there were real repercussions against the, uh, the Jewish people, I think. I know that the uh, the repercussions started a long time before the beginning of the Second World War where we got involved. But her family was able to eventually move to England and she was working as a scriptwriter in the BBC when she met Nigel Neal. Then she became better known for a writer of children's books. She wrote the uh, the Mog Illustrated Books. Oh right! And there's a semi-autobiographical book called When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit.
0: I oh, sounds charming. Um, I've, I've
1: not read it. It, it. It's supposed to be a bit sort of book thiefy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a bit book thiefy.
1: A good description. Uh, it might be better than the book thief because I didn't particularly like the book thief <laughs> as a book, to be honest. But.
0: Um, for, I've never seen all the boy uh, in the
1: striped pyjamas, which it, again I have not read, but they're they're all kind of dealing with the, the same sort of topic.
0: I've not read any of them uh, completely. You're highlighting my my gaps here, no, but, but no, I've never I seen. I Kavanaugh wouldn't bother QC. with the book thief. Well, I've never seen Cavan QC. Um I know it was a, a big thing it's when really it was on. Good.
1: Um, the, this is the only th- episode that Nigel Neal wrote for it, which is why I've chosen to highlight this one. Do you know? Have you seen Judge John Deed? Yes It's yeah. as good as that
0: mm. Is that typical of the episodes? Because um, is very that... light in this He's a light touch all the way through It's not like he's striding through and cutting a knife through the course. it's all A lot of that, them, that was accidental,
1: really. That, that success by serendipity isn't usual for it. It's usually success by cleverness. Right.
0: Using a Northern accent, John Thor. I don't think I've ever heard him use a uh, not a, a London accent or not a, a Morse accent before. It's always been of a, a more Southern type. He's drifting North in this I one.
1: hadn't really noticed, to be honest, which shows what a good job he did of it.
0: Mm. Frederick Treves, who I know best as the army general out of, yes, Prime Minister. Um, He he appeared with John Thorne in um, one of the Morris episodes, which I think was The Silent World of Nicholas Quinn. But he's also, as I've uh, found from looking on the net, he was Brotodach in Megalos.
1: Oh, so that's right. the Doctor Who
0: connection. I've
1: not seen Meg Losser in a long time. I'm not in a desperate hurry to watch it again. No, it's not um, top of my it list. really depresses me that we got that instead of finishing Sharder.
0: I'm with you on that. And another member and of the a cast.
1: a criminal waste of Jacqueline Hill as a guest star.
0: Yes. Least said it. But another member of the cast, Archie Whiteley, who plays Helen uh, Kavanagh Jr. She died in 2001, age 37, of adrenal cancer. A bit of a surprise to find that out on
1: IMDb. Yeah. And just to give you a little bit of context, we're recording this commentary uh, after we've just done our radiation-themed evening. So we had a triple bill of... Depression. um, A a Grimfest of Out of the Unknown's level seven, and then the war game, and then Threads. So that that was a really cheery evening. And this isn't a... A pleasant watch. It's a very good watch, but it's not a pleasant watch afterwards. So we really need something cheery next. We
0: could do with either some a Doctor Who or some comedy or just something that isn't relentless death in horrible ways,
1: because we've done nothing but that now for a good 12 hours. Okay. Well, if you want to be a lightweight about it, oh. we, can find, we can find something a bit more cheery.
0: Well, I think I think we're heading towards gin territory before the next watch. Okay. Let me... Did we ever leave gin territory? It, it's past breakfast time on a Saturday morning. We're, we're at Saturday lunch now. I think we're. It's gin o'clock is, is looming. What is our next episode? What, what's next on the list? We're about to start our
1: next recording session, and um, well, actually, we're working on the Halloween special. Ah, yes, um, and I've got some really fun stuff planned. And. Some- Classic sixties um, Edgar Allan Poe stuff. Less than cheery seventies offering. Um, might leave that until the end. A Hammer House of Horror. Always which good fun. Is always good fun. Um, knowing your love of Victoriana we're starting off with the um, Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. And I know that's a, a show you haven't seen, but we're it doing is. doing a wonderful episode called The Horse of the Invisible and an Invisible Horse. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, yeah. Watch it. You're, you're like, trust, trust me on this. It's got you written all over it. Um, and there's there's a, there a couple of other little Halloween-y things that we might throw in.
0: Well, the Halloween episode, once we've recorded it, that should be ready uh, for Halloween week.
1: And also, as a little surprise, I'm thinking of doing our first non-English TV show for Halloween. Oh, my. Subtitled? Oh, no, it's in English, but it's not produced by an English company, oh, by an you. English TV company.
0: But Well, uh, I'd just like to say thank you to Andy and Lisa for allowing us a segment of their podcast. If and a
1: big, big thank you to them for Around the Archive, which is consistently entertaining and the inspiration for us doing our podcast. It
0: is, really. So thanks a lot, guys. So- uh, but if you would like to hear more of our stuff, we are... Uh, the Exton Moss Experiment on SoundCloud. Or you can look at our blog, which is extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com. And we do aim to uh, podcast about once a fortnight.
1: We also have a Twitter account on at ExtonMoss and a rarely updated Instagram account called at Moss as well.
0: So do look us up. And if you've got any comments, um, uh, please let us know. But otherwise, we shall pass you back over into the capable hands of Andy and Lisa for their podcast. Thanks for listening.
1: Goodbye now.
0: Our next guest segment was again for Round the Archives. This one was from the 33rd episode and is a segment on the pilot episode of MacGyver from 1985. Hello, everyone, and uh, hello to listeners of Round the Archives. This is a guest podcast appearance from the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss.
1: I'm Simon Exton. And I know the Round the Archive guys for... uh, I've known them for quite a lot of years. Andy and I used to work in a chemistry lab back in the 80s in Poole in Dorset. And while we were working there, there was a TV programme that used to be on a Saturday evening called MacGyver. An American programme about a secret agent who used to make stuff out of things that he found lying around. There was almost always some chemistry in in the episode. And... Being teenage lads and working in a chemistry lab and really rather enjoying the the show, what we used to do on a Monday morning after we'd all seen it on the the Saturday was try to recreate what MacGyver had done a couple of days beforehand. And it generally worked pretty well. Now, I've not seen any MacGyver in in years. Uh, It stars Richard Dean Anderson, who went on to do um, very well in Stargate. And I think this was his big, big break, first lead role. It's really entertaining. Ken, you'd not seen it before. Have I've not you? seen
0: a single one. I've I've heard of it many times. Um, and in fact, the bizarrely, the the one reference that I know about MacGyver is actually from a Simpsons episode. In uh, I think it's at the wedding of Selma and sideshow Bob. There's a massive segue there. But no, so I haven't seen it. I don't know anything about the premise apart from what you've just said. So I think the easiest thing is just to dive straight in. Well, it's the pilot episode. It's the
1: pilot episode we're going to watch from 1985.
0: Which is the best place to start. So without further ado, Ron VT. OK, well, colour me impressed. I very, very much enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Starts off with a, a little scene setting thing and a pre-credit sequence, which he almost always had from what I remember. And he rescues a downed American pilot from somewhere in Asia and gets back some essential microchip. Or no, There wasn't anything particularly micro about the technology. Was Not there. at all, no. Um, so a big chunk of circuit board from this missile that they didn't want, whichever this... Um, foreign government was to get hold of and then there are the the credits with the catchy theme tune and then it goes straight into the episode and the premise is that there's an there's a research foundation that has an underground headquarters and laboratory and there's a big explosion there explosion ruptures a sulfuric acid tank which is gradually dripping through the um the bedrock chewing its way through as it goes and it's going to hit an underground river that will vent into the Rio Grande I think they said which will poison, poison the water, water supply, supply for three states or something it's quite entertaining they they do things like uh, plugging the gap in the sulfuric acid tank with chocolate so that the sugar reacts with it which is actually exactly what would happen and whoever they had as a chemistry advisor did a pretty good job Less convinced about their tiny, tiny bit of metallic sodium being used as a big enough explosion to blow blow up a wall, but... <laughs> well, we'll let that one slide.
0: This and is it... a first for us, because we've never done a piece of American television before. It's all been British.
1: British or Irish.
0: Oh, yes, or Irish. Pudge and Rodge with yeah. those who... I asked you fairly early on, is this a Glen A. Larson? Because it, it feels... It's very much of yeah, that it... ilk. It isn't. It's actually... Henry Winkler.
1: So this was executive producer of the Fonz.
0: The theme tune, again, it's got one of those annoyingly catchy theme tunes. That's going to be in my head for days. Earworm. Brilliant stuff. He's impossibly handsome, and as predicted, within about 30 seconds of meeting, oh look, the most attractive woman on the site happens to end up being his uh, a companion assistant tag-along for the episode, and within 40 seconds they're kissing. What a surprise. A lot of gratuitous upskirt shots. Oh, there. yes,
1: there there were. And um, she, she had to do a lot of hoiking her skirt up to climb over walls and things. So was-
0: As you've pointed out, though, the science is reasonably robust throughout it. There are the occasional artistic license blips, but...
1: And there's actually nothing wrong with the sodium reaction they do. They just don't use anywhere near enough Mm. of it.
0: With this being the pilot episode, I'm assuming like most pilot episodes, they throw a load of money at it, and they're not quite at that level for the rest of the series.
1: I can't remember because I don't think I've seen this since about 1992. It's very precise. That's when it finished. Fair enough. I was still working in the uh, the chemistry lab at that point so yeah I know exactly it, it ran 85 to 92 I, I left that lab in 93 so yes I, I know when I last saw I
0: that, that, that's a reasonable explanation I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one
1: um, I don't remember seeing it on any, any repeats or anything so although it, it's not impossible the occasional episode would have slipped in so I can't really remember just how good the production values carry on certainly the the stories continued to be very entertaining.
0: I'm just amazed I've never seen one. That is exactly the sort of thing that I would have been watching around that time. There's Night Rider, Street Hawk, Airwolf, you know, Battlestar Galactica, so all the sort of action series yeah, that, yeah. that sailed was, over the pond. I was I was into so. Pass. And
1: it was Saturday evening. It's so early Saturday evening, so six o'clock or something.
0: I can imagine this being on uh, either just before or just after Child's Play with Michael Aspel. I seem to remember in those days, Night Rider and then Child's Play.
1: Don't know what that is.
0: Oh, that that's one for you to look up. We won't be doing that on a podcast. Basically, kids say the dindest things. Sort of oh, thing. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. yeah, With I Michael can. Aspel. Yeah, I can live without that. But it, it's, uh, you've said you're going to leave me the DVD and yeah. I'm very glad because that's... that's uh, I have a week working at home looming, so that's got all the hallmarks of being my lunchtime.
1: Ah, uh, working.
0: It, it is working. Unfortunately, uh, it's January, and as ever, the inland revenue is coming and knocking at the end of it, and I haven't finished my accounts yet, so yeah. it'll provide welcome relief from the tedium of sums.
1: now yeah, that's grand. Yeah, it, it, it's an American action thing. You don't actually need a massive amount of thought behind it the technology by today's standards is enormous and clunky and really entertaining they they give him a, a two-way radio which is oh, it's about the size of a cigarette packet he, he loses weird. it halfway yeah. through
0: but there are some ingenious get-outs of problems with everyday objects which i thought was good I, yeah,
1: and and it does carry on with like that and he uh, when he does his chemistry stuff there's one i one thing i remember where he needed some aluminium so he finds a somebody's sports bike and th- turns that into an aluminium because he would have an aluminium mm. frame so he <laughs> drops up some poor bloke's sports bike <laughs> to get his <laughs> aluminium
0: got to give a, a shout out for who alumni dr who alumni oliv right. puley
1: it's professor stahlman
0: who pops up looking considerably older considering it's I an mean, this would only be what 15 years he looks a lot older than 15 years have passed between that and inferno
1: yeah it's Kind of inferno-ish in that there's it's underground and there's goo leaking. A out leak, yes. It's a little bit of a stretch, but
0: but we're Doctor Who fans and we'll crowbar any old stretch into uh, anything.
1: Absolutely, and it, and it's quite nice that he's a uh, McGover is a um, a lead sort of secret agent type who doesn't use guns. I th- I think when I was reading up on it, this is the only episode where he uses a gun, and I don't think in the entire run of the series he actually kills anybody.
0: He doesn't actually. He doesn't actually use the gun. He ties it to a tree with a stick and a bit of string. No,
1: when he's when he's running away before they're about to. Jump oh off yes, that, yeah. He's about to jump off that cliff with the pilot that he's just mm. rescued. Then he does fire back at the. Um, yeah,
0: and that pilot, by the way, must have a grip of steel because he just, without really much warning, it's ah, uh, oh, I've made a rocket launcher. Hang on, bang! That that's. <laughs> it gives him about. 0.3 of a second to warn him that they're going to jump off the cliff without any sort of safety attachment to each other whatsoever it's just hang on
1: and you never actually see the pilot again no so you don't, no, know you how don't. i mean it's that assumed
0: that he survived but uh,
1: yeah, but yes there could be pilot jam
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's annoying me though where macgyver's mate the guy who lands in the helicopter and gives him his mission i've seen him somewhere before I have looked on IMDb and I don't recognise any of his credits on IMDb.
1: There's a couple of things I recognise him for because I, he was in Kingdom Hospital, which I love. Um, but it, that's really quite obscure. I try not to be too surprised by that. I, I'm going
0: to say, as with a lot of the things that you have watched, they are so obscure I've never even heard of them. I have said before on several of our own podcasts that Simon's knowledge of archive TV eclipses my own by several country miles. So I come to these things just basking in the glory of whatever Simon pulls out of his DVD case this week. And sometimes not.
1: Corridor People. <clears throat> you, ne- you need to see more of the Corridor People to really appreciate it. We'll watch all the episodes sometime. Thankfully there are only four of them. Oh, that means we need to watch them twice. So
0: that's, that's our brief summing up of uh, the pilot episode of MacGyver. I can recommend it. I would definitely recommend that.
1: I was a little... Uh, very, slightly dubious when we... Uh, we're talking about doing this, and I was discussing it with Lisa and Andy because memory cheats. Oh, and memory does, thi- This yes. is something that I watched as a teenager and really enjoyed it. And I was thinking, well, actually, coming to it quite a number of decades later, am I still going to be keen? And it was still very entertaining.
0: There are a couple of things which we do on our own podcast, which it would seem churlish not to, not to let listeners of Lisa and Andy's podcast into. <laughs> First and foremost, we always do a gin review, and as per usual with these recording sessions, we're currently drinking gin.
1: We are, and we're drinking a particularly nice gin. What have we got for tonight? We have Curio, which is a Cornish gin, and it's made with samphire, which gives it that nice little salty edge to it. It is absolutely gorgeous. We rate our gins out on the Bernard scale.
0: In honour of Mr Quatermass. Professor Quatermass. Professor Quatermass.
1: Quatermass. And this is a solid five out of five for me, no doubt about it.
0: I wouldn't go that far. It's a very nice gin, a very, a very nice gin. Uh, generally speaking, we drink it with Fever Tree tonics, which is a wonderful tonic water. I don't know why it's so much better than most of the others, but it is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There, there are others. There's Fentiment and there's uh, there's a London one.
1: I still like Schweppes. I'm not actually that fussed on Fever Tree. I'll drink it,
0: don't get me wrong. You, you'll, you'll force it down. I'm hovering between three and four. It is a very nice one. I think... Don't give me that look. I'm going to give it a four. I'll give it a four. It's not quite in my five brackets, but it is... The same better. as you gave Star of Bombay. I didn't give Star of Bombay four. Didn't you? No. No. It got a solid three. But oh, I gave it a four. Yeah. This is harking back to an earlier session this afternoon. We had Star of Bombay... Which is a, as we described it, a posh Bombay Sapphire. Yeah,
1: which I can't really tell the difference between um, that no, Bombay we, Sapphire. So
0: we couldn't tell a blind bit of difference. Bombay Star of Bombay, a good solid three, but it's it's nowadays it's it's very much in the very good, but there are better ones available category. The other section that we uh, it's a, a brand new section that we've started doing this recording session, is the Black Archive. <laughs> This is basically our opportunity to pick a missing piece of television from the archives and decide which one we would like to resurrect, if it wasn't lost. I'm going to go with the Doctor Who, what a surprise, and I think this time it's going to be The Daleks Masterplan, because I listen to that every Christmas, and I have done since it was first released on CD, I love Daleks Masterplan, it's a big sprawling thing which it's a series of set pieces I mean, it's not it's one very loosely jointed story that uh, a bit like the war game it's the beginning and the end yeah. the middle is a movable feast but i do love dalek's master plan so that will be mine
1: i mean i don't get me wrong i, I like dalek master plan i would love to see any doctor who episode come back if i were going for uh, Hartnell, i think it would be the savages
0: you have mentioned, mentioned this mentioned before that.
1: Um, Last time I was asked the question, I said there's savages, and in the intervening four hours, my answer hasn't changed. It's a really nice, underrated story. Um, The telesnaps look, some of them look absolutely lovely. It's nice to have a story where nobody dies. Yes. It's the only Hartnell science fiction that doesn't have any episodes.
0: You are full of interesting trivia. You come out with stuff. The, The Henry Winkler thing, I'm still just one of those fascinating little snippets that I can... Now look at MacGyver and think the Fonz produced that. And now the Smugglers is the only Hartnell sci-fi with no episodes. The Savages. Enjoying the gin. gin, I'm enjoying the gin immensely. It's um, doing. It's working a treat.
1: That's a bit of a segue because I wasn't actually going to talk about a Doctor Who art for my contribution to this particular Black Archive.
0: Well, you've already you've already resurrected the Smugglers earlier this afternoon. So what would be your one for this? Or even the Savages. Right, shut up.
1: Curio Gin, ladies and gentlemen. Curio
0: Gen, it works a treat. What it would makes you resurrect? You mix up your heartnells. What would you resurrect?
1: I would resurrect a Nigel Neal play called The Road.
0: Okay, tell me more about um, it.
1: The BBC have actually already done this to a certain extent because an audio version of it was released last... I think it was last Halloween. Uh, Mark G- Gatiss was behind that. It's an incredibly clever play. Um, it's set in I think the mid 18th century and it's an investigation into reports of ghosts in a um, nearby wood and there's a scientist and some sort of some flavor of theologian who are arguing about the existence of ghosts and whether there's any scientific validity whether we should be looking in terms of scientific validity Um, and then at the end of the story you get to hear the ghosts and it's very clear from what you hear that it's a group of modern people trapped on a, um, a motorway just as a nuclear bomb hits.
0: More nuclear fun
1: We've just done an episode on radiation a few months ago. Few you're months. still recovering, aren't you?
0: Yes, we, we did some uh, had a lovely evening's viewing of uh, various radiation-themed television culminating with threads. If anybody is interested in listening to that podcast, it's on our website. Um, That is a grim fest, but also one of the best pieces of TV that I have ever seen. With that, I think before we segue too much, we should let Andy and Lisa get back to their own podcast. But thank you very much for listening. If you're interested in hearing more from us, we are on Facebook, The Moss Experiment.
1: We're on Twitter at Exton and Instagram at Exton Moss.
0: And we also have a blog spot with news and all the links to our archive recordings. So thank you very much, everyone. We shall pass you back to the very capable hands of Andy and Lisa. Thank you for giving us a plug, guys. And we'll speak to you soon.
1: Yes, enjoy listening.
0: Our last segment in this edition is one that Simon recorded recently. It was a phone-in for an excellent podcast called Help, I Sexted My Boss. It's a hilarious podcast, well worth your time, and this is Simon phoning in with one of his questions.
2: Right, what are we doing here? Well, have we been dragged in? We're here for the Help hotline. Can I just ask, were you actually lying about in your boxes when the call came through? Pretty much. I am seeing you more than my own mother these days. Well, I was busy ironing my shoelaces. Anyway, shall we explain what the Help Hotline actually is? Yes. That might help, where you and I help one of the listeners with an extremely important problem. But instead of writing it via email, social media or a luxury letter, producer Ben has made his phone number publicly available, so you get straight through to us. I'm quite excited to talk to our first G&Diva. So am I, actually, yeah. So, hello, Simon. How
1: are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
2: Yes, I'm fine, thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do we find you today?
1: I live in Stoke-on-Trent. I'm a doctor working for the NHS and I work with patients with brain injuries.
2: Oh, you're doing a sterling job. Thank you, Simon. Tell us, do you think you're more like me, or do you think you're more like Jordan?
1: Probably somewhere in the middle, I think. A bit little from column A, a little from column B.
2: With me being column A, I probably sound a bit more like you than like Jordan. Yeah, I would. I would agree. I think that's a fair assessment.
3: Uh, yeah, you sound, you sound quite well-spoken, to be fair, Simon.
2: And like both me and Jordan, do you like the D as well? Absolutely. Yes. Good. Well, it's nice to be talking to someone of like mind. Had you had it before?
1: Um, No, I hadn't. I heard about it through this podcast. Um, I've tried it. It's now become my Friday night drink.
2: Yes, that's what we like to hear. Fantastic. Well done. I... I'd
3: also never
2: had it before the podcast,
3: and now it's one of my favourite tipples. I love a bit of
2: D on a Friday as well. Simon, tell us a bit about your dilemma. How can we help you? Well,
1: as I say, I'm a doctor, um, and I have the best job in the world. But I do find that when I'm socialising, people will ask me for my medical opinion. So basically ask me to do my job while I'm out and about. Uh. I was at dinner with some friends a few weeks ago and learnt far more about my host's erectile dysfunction than I ever
2: wanted to
3: oh. Oh, God.
2: <laughs> oh, you've, you've found Jordan's funny bone with erections uh, And do you get this
1: a lot, Simon? Um, I do get it quite a lot, actually I, When I first meet people, I generally don't tell people what I do for a living for exactly this reason.
2: Have you ever lied about what your profession is? Have you ever gone, yes, I'm an accountant or, you know, I'm a tree surgeon?
1: Uh, no, but I, I normally do fudge things by saying um, I work for the NHS. Yeah.
2: yeah. I once got into a taxi and I was in a suit and he was taking me to the Ritz and uh, he said, uh, what do you do? And I said, I'm afraid I can't talk to you about it. Oh. And he said, you're not tell me anything. I said, no, I'm afraid we need to leave it, we need to leave it there. And then we were just in glacial silence with the rest of the uh, the taxi drive. So
3: helping Simon out here,
2: yep. how can we help him? A, is it all right to lie about your job? Ly- I mean, lying's never great. OK. Uh, obviously, we're not going to condone lying. But I think, actually, I like what Simon does when he says, I work for the NHS. What's the proper protocol when somebody asks him if they can check somewhere? Should he be like, I'm sorry, but I'm out? Maybe just give a sentence of short advice and then say, uh, but if you need any further advice, do do go and see your local GP. What's the weirdest question you've been asked whilst you've been out
3: socialising? What's anybody done? With?
1: Oh, the the weirdest one wasn't actually a question.
2: Um, I was at. Did you get shown something?
1: Oh yes, I, I was at Manchester Pride a, a, a number of years ago, um, and one of the porters who worked at my hospital recognised me and just shouted over, "Oh hello, doc." Um. So I, I, waved back mm-hmm. and a young lady standing standing next, next to me was saying oh you're a doctor you, you lot have saved my life you've given me one of these and pulled down her, uh, her pants to show me wow. her new vagina oh which she, she was obviously very proud of and they seemed to have all the requisite bits
2: <laughs> Simon what did you say? Uh, I could speak to Simon um, for hours I, I,
1: think I, I think I said something along the lines of oh well your surgeon seems to have done a very good job I hope you're pleased with it <laughs>
2: What you thought is you thought. What would the Queen Mother do?
1: Um, I have no clue what the Queen Mother would do. <laughs> Point laugh and ask for another gin. I suspect.
2: Even if you've just
3: transitioned, it's still not okay to show a doctor your bits whilst out socially. Well yeah,
2: it? not not in a social capacity. No. And not okay. unless they ask, to be honest. How should Simon deal with people? What is the line he should use? I think you just need to say with a lovely smile. Well, look, I'm I'm off the clock at the moment, but if you'd like to, to come and see me in my surgery, I can give you the proper proper advice.
3: Simon, to be fair, whilst you're on the phone, I am weeing a lot lately. Like, no, don't you to-
2: can't, Jordan. This is everything that we have actually been telling, <laughs> I, saying that no, he's honestly, not your can't GP. Seem to- I'm like he specialises bro- in head injuries. Uh, I've got a blood like a leg cup okay. at the moment. Simon, please, you're under no obligation to answer this question.
1: I occasionally get the opposite problem as well, in that I will sometimes notice things while I'm out out (sighs) socialising. And that's actually much more of a dilemma about whether to mention something or not.
3: Oh, so give us an example.
1: An example, and this is from a couple of years ago, but I was at a party at a friend's house. Towards the end of the party, I was talking to somebody that I hadn't met before. Very nice lady in her mid-40s. And as I was talking to her, I noticed that she had a crab in her eyebrow. A crab? So, a, a pubic louse.
2: Oh. Oh, it, was, it wasn't the first course that went wrong? <laughs> oh. No. Oh,
3: my God. Right, carry on, Simon.
1: And uh, c- crab lice normally live in the pubic hair, but will actually live in eyebrows as well. Wow. Do I tell her um, and avoid any possible embarrassment with other people noticing, and to have her perhaps mortified and embarrassed for the rest of the evening yeah. or do I wait and tell her later on? Now, because I first met her later on in the evening, I was able to just take her to one side and say look, I, you don't mind me noticing I'm a doctor I've, I've noticed that this has happened if you have any tweezers or something with you, you could... Uh... <laughs> Just remove it and uh, perhaps a, um, a visit to your, your doctor.
3: I mean, William, I think that's actually the correct way to do it, pull it to one side.
2: Yeah, you can't say that in front of other people. Simon, thank you so much indeed for calling the help hotline. Uh, I hope this has helped in its own special way. It, it has, thank you. So what did you um, really learn from that?
1: I
3: learned that some of our g and are doctors.
2: Yes, we we attract a quality
3: crowd. We do. I am so impressed that we've had a doctor as our first person on the help outline. We've just helped a doctor, William. It don't get much better than this. No, I know. I feel like we're actually doing a justice. Who would have thought? I bet he sees all sorts. Do you know what? If any G and us are listening now, I think the rule of thumb is: don't ask doctors in a social capacity if they can help you with something, unless or anyone. life or death. To
2: be honest, you know, I know dentists and kitchen designers and etiquette coaches get yeah. it where they start asking for, for advice that isn't, you know, remunerated. And it's not... We're, in our social capacity, we are all entitled to a social life. If I go to an event this evening, I am going as me, not as etiquette coach, William.
3: And It's OK, I think, like, if... if you're at a party and you've got some. You've got like you said a designer and just said, "Oh, what do you think of my curtains? I think that's okay." But we're a doctor. Don't get
2: your bollocks out. No, Right.
3: remember think, that. Yeah,
2: remember that. If like Simon, you want to feature on the Help Hotline, the number to call is plus four four seven nine three nine two nine seven six hundred. It's all on sextedmyboss.com. If you didn't get that.
0: The final segment this time is the second part of our Sophie Aldred interview. This is something that I recorded at Who in the Cavern in 2007, and the interviewer is Charlie Ross.
4: Um, does Adam, I, I know William's a little bit young, does Adam watch Doctor Who?
5: No, they don't watch Doctor Who yet. Um, it may sound a bit weird, but they don't watch telly. Um, I decided that um, this is one of the sort of things about the Steiner schooling as well, is that. Um, I've done a lot of research about television and uh, computer games and media and the development of the child's mind and, um, and what it does to us. And when I thought about it, I thought, well, actually, I didn't really start watching telly until I was about seven, eight. Um, and we didn't, we didn't have much telly in those days, did we? We just, we had a few programs that we watched and that was it. And now, it's, I do think it's quite worrying that children the, the kind of the television in the bedroom syndrome you know where a child can be watching the most horrific images of n- the news for example and know far too much about the world before they're they're ready to um, I, I, I completely think that it's okay to you know to show a child a few things so anyway Adam watches a bit of football occasionally he's been brainwashed into becoming a Liverpool fan and he's, uh, <laughs> He's also been brainwashed into actually thinking he was born in Liverpool. <laughs> My husband was saying yesterday, Adam, we're going to the city of your birth. <laughs> the place where you were born. He was even trying to tell William as well, William, he said, like you were born in Liverpool. And William looked at him and went, with all the wisdom of his three years, went, No! <laughs> but they do love Liverpool.
4: Um, I suppose, I mean, I don't know much if you've watched the new series then, but... Uh, oh, yeah, well, Ray, Vince
5: and I, we it, yeah, and I right. know we're devoted right. to
4: it. Do you know that I think Ace was Rose Mark I? think She was the first companion that you started to get a sense of a relationship between the, the Doctor and the companion.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that there was, you know, somewhere in the back of Rusty avis's mind, there was this, uh, you know, that was a prototype for Rose. Um... I think Ace was in a way more unusual than the Rose character because there wasn't anything like her before on television, whereas with Rose we've had, you know, 20 years of, of sitcoms and, I mean, not sitcoms, of um, soaps and where the strong young female characters and dramas and things, but there wasn't really that much before, uh, before Ace for children, for, you know, family viewing. There was, um, what was her name? Susan Tully in East Ended. She was a, a sort of strong, young female character. Because um, that had only been going a couple of years before we were doing Our Doctor Who, hadn't it, wasn't it? And there was Grange Hill, you know. But uh, yeah, the, it, Ace was quite unusual, I think, for her time. As the letters that I got, and still do, you know, when I meet people... Uh, young women now who say to me, oh, Ace was my role model, you know, and that was fantastic for me to play someone like that um, who was kind of actually having an effect. I mean, now looking back, it's quite strange because I sort of don't condone, I didn't think about it at the time. I mean, I was 20, whatever, 24, 25, and I sort of didn't think about those sorts of things, but actually the whole baseball bat and Nitro 9 Uh, and things could be... uh perceived as being a bit dodgy but the good thing was that the doctor was quite you know he he was always the one who in fact Sylvester was at great pains to always uh, say no the doctor wouldn't do this the doctor wouldn't hold an anti-tank gun and try and shoot a Dalek ace you do it you know so uh, but I think mean, that was good though because you've always got to have somebody who's going to control those tendencies whereas you know ace uh, rose was much more emotionally developed than ace was you know she was much more mature and she was actually curbing the doctor's violent tendencies um and um i mean i i i love the character of rose but i I'm glad you, that you think that you know, Ace may have had something to do with it. I certainly do. I certainly do. Uh,
4: what, uh, the, the Dalek episode was on last week and Nick Pegg's going to be here this afternoon who is a Dalek operator. And I think they looked fantastic, very swish and the movements were amazing. What were your Daleks like? Were they temperamental or were they classic? Well, it was
5: amazing. I was looking at this Dalek yesterday. I was at Milton Keynes for a, a big Collector Mania show there and a fan had made his own Dalek out of... Uh, aluminium sheeting and you know and it was the most beautiful pristine Dalek and I, I was talking to him about this. I said, You know that our Daleks were no- look nothing like this when I first saw the Daleks in the studio, or actually it was on location by near Waterloo station when we were doing Rem- remembrance, I thought, but these are so tatty and so old <laughs> you know there were flakes of paint falling off, and they were kind of you know they looked really, really ropey. And they said, oh, well, that won't show on screen. And sure enough, you can get away with anything on TV because of the lighting and because, you know, you're seeing this tiny version, really. You know, you're seeing a dialect that big, which is... And somehow you don't notice peeling paint or... Um, I mean, people always talk about Doctor Who and wobbly sets. We never had any wobbly sets in my time. I thought that the sets... You know, I thought the BBC does particularly well at things like... Ghostlight, for example. I mean, that set was incredible. Yeah. It was so solid. And so um, I, I I think people are thinking, you know, that sort of acorn antiquesy thing. Um, perhaps they were like that in the 60s, maybe. I don't know. Is that true? Did sets wobble in Doctor Who in the 60s? I think, well, Toby
4: Haydock uh, puts it down to twice in the whole uh, initial run. Uh, that Only twice a set wobble and he can actually identify what episode it is. Maybe someone here can. Does anyone know? I don't. But um, I know Toby has, has actually inscrupulously watched every episode 60 times, apparently. And he, he can <laughs> like pinpoint exactly two times that set did wobble. So is, I, mean, I, th- I think it's something that just enters mythology and you start to believe yeah. it. Um, yes, yeah.
5: It's like the Daleks going up the stairs all yeah. lot, You know, I mean, for, forever, even after they'd gone up the stairs in mm-hmm. Remembrance of the Daleks, I mean, partly because we hadn't got brilliant viewing figures, I guess, so not everybody saw it. But, you know, you'd still have cartoons in the papers about Daleks not being able to conquer the universe because they couldn't go up the stairs. And it, it, uh, it drove my mother mad more than me, actually, because my mother is fantastic on uh, details. She would have been a brilliant continuity person. She's always going to see films and coming back and she says, Yes, well, of course they had a Wedgwood teapot. I mean... <laughs> And, and I think, oh, right, yes, mum, you know. Or, oh, dear, well, we, you know, in that scene, he was wearing his hat that side, and then in that, she notices everything. So she'd have been fantastic. But um, it used to drive her mad. that people, oh, They said the Dalek didn't go up the stairs when it went up the stairs in your episode, she says. <laughs> but our Daleks, yes, were, they suffered from um, Dalek wobble, actually, I have to say, because... When we were filming for ours, we were on cobbles in Waterloo, around the streets of Waterloo, because it was doubling for London in the... um, whenever it was... 1960s? Yeah, 1960s, that's right. And so we found this nice area of London which doubled very well. But uh, they realised that they couldn't use the normal Dalek wheels. I don't know what they use now, but it looked like they used those casters before that go on sofas, you know, and they would push around. Um, so what they decided to do was use do you remember those wheelbarrows, plastic kids wheelbarrows with orange those orange wheels that Sort of. that's what they used, one at the front and two at the back to sort of cushion the, the wobbly effect from the, the um, stones that worked very well except for the fact that of course when you've got one wheel at the front and two at the back they go like this so they got in the Daleks and they started wobbling along, and they looked as if they were kind of weaving, and they'd been to the pub. Daleks terminate. But they were I, the Dalek operators. I take off my hats to Dalek operators. I mean, Nick will Nick will tell you later. I mean, you know, it's hot, it's cramped, um, and we had Sci uh, Town, John Scott Martin, who'd been doing it for years, which was wonderful because, you know, we had the benefit of their experience. And um, they just knew everything about how a Dalek was going to work and how we could do what we could do. And it's amazing, they were completely dedicated to it, you know. Look, I'm going to flash my lights four times here and then I'm going to just do this and do that, you know. They were just totally into it, it was really fantastic. And rehearsals were great, because of course we used to have the luxury of rehearsals in those days. And the Dalek operators, they don't do this anymore, but the Dalek operators would obviously come to the rehearsals as well but without the Daleks so they had to be the Daleks without the shells so what they did was they walked around the room and they'd have rolled up newspapers like this for the eye for the eye stalk and they'd be going <laughs> So it was fantastic when we rehearsed. You know, there's that big scene at Totters Lane in Remembrance, and uh, everybody's rushing around. The soldiers are all shooting at everything. Uh, we're sort of diving around, and then the Dalek comes from around the corner, and you see it for the first time. Well, we were rehearsing this scene, and it was just fantastic. We had, we were all like, you know, um, Simon Williams with his his pretend gun, you know, Doctor, you know, and it was it was just like this, and. I just took a moment to sit at the side and I looked round and I thought, wow, this is just like when we were at school playing, playing Daleks, but I'm being paid for it now, fantastic. And, the, and then the Dalek, when it was blown up, the operator came round the corner like this. And then, you know, then we had this big explosion and he took his rolled up newspaper and it was like, bang, said someone and he went... <sighs> <laughs> dramatic death of a Dalek <laughs>
0: Excellent You can hear the third and final part of that interview in a forthcoming podcast Well thank you for listening everyone I hope you've enjoyed our cross pollinations Do keep writing in with all your comments and questions they are very much appreciated We'll be back in a fortnight's time with Doctor Who, the Macro Terror, the animated version and we hope you can join us then Thanks for listening The Exton Moss experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmosexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.